Well, contrary to what Joe has stated, I will not be going through a legal analysis of the things that have happened in the Supreme Court over the last week. Uh, before I get started, though, we should be reminded and comforted that God is bigger than the Supreme Court. He's bigger than the U.S. He is the one who created all. He is not lost on this. He has not forgotten this. And so we can take great courage and comfort that the God we serve is the true God. He never said it would be easy to be a believer. He never said that it would be easy to be a Christian. So our mission and goal remains the same, and that is to serve Christ. And that is to preach the truth to others. The problem is the rejection of Christ. So I wanted to start with that because I know that that's heavy on, on many of our minds and our hearts uh, this week. But as we get started, well, first of all, I want to thank Joe for giving me the opportunity to come back in your class. It's, it's always great to be able to share the word, and it gives us an opportunity to respond to the word. So I'm excited about that. It gave me an opportunity to respond through as I was studying for what I was going to share this morning. And I wanted to start out with kind of a story, a personal story. I've worked in corporate America for the last seven years, and before that have held a job since uh, 16. Um, for some of you, that's not a very long time, I understand. I get that. But I do have some experience, and, and again, as I said, I've had several different jobs. But in those jobs, I can think of specific individuals who have made a significant impact on me. Uh, they played a, a key role in my development. These individuals took a chance. Um, they took a risk on me. They spent extra time with me to help develop me. Uh, perhaps they saw some kind of potential. Uh, and I'm going to let your minds wander just a bit. And again, this will be the only time in church that somebody will give you permission to let your mind wander. Okay, so, so, so take advantage of it. I want you to think back in your own careers to those who have made significant impacts on you uh, in a similar fashion. And if you're like me, you feel some kind of sense of loyalty to them. Uh, they're important to you because you respect them, how they've been involved in your career, and one specific example, I worked for a software company in a sales position from 2010 to 2014, and I had a manager who gave me several opportunities outside of my normal daily job function to grow our business as a whole. And while I was personally responsible for growing revenue within my specific geographical territory, he allowed me to work to help other teams grow their revenue in their respective regions. Essentially, he allowed me to think as a manager would and actually implement some of my strategies. I became so loyal to this manager that I started to ignore ideas from other team members and even other managers. And I started to be divisive in my own way because I only listened to one individual, and that was my manager. I didn't think to reason that we were all working for the same common goal, and that was to sell more product, help our customers, and meet our shareholder expectations. And what I want us to look at today is very similar to this story, except that it has to do with the church. And I've titled this message simply, Division, Unity, and Our Response. You see, division is detrimental, and when it takes place in the church, it can kill her, and quick. 
And what I don't want us to think here at Lakeside is that we are beyond this. We are not safe from division. And while our leadership has been vigilant against it, as well as our people, it does not give us an immunity. And again, this is not meant to be a a scare tactic. It's only meant to remind us of the importance that we be a unified church. And we're going to look at what that means. Our text that we're going to look at with regards to this is 1 Corinthians 1, 10-17. We're going to look at Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And again, specifically, division unity and what is to be our response. So let's begin with, with reading the passage and then we'll provide just a little bit of background. So again, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the church at Corinth was in Greece, and the people there consisted of Greeks, Romans, and Jews. And Corinth dealt with much sin. Some of these included sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, stealing, covetousness, and that list continues. Paul founded this church, and the second leader after Paul was this man named Apollos, and we'll we'll talk about him in, in a little bit. Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary trip where he met two familiar characters, Aquila and Priscilla. Again, they were Jews who were, who were driven out of Rome, and so he founds this church at Corinth. And what's interesting is before we jump into our, our text here, we always want to set a little bit of background here of, of some of the verses preceding. And Paul begins this letter to uh, the Corinthians by establishing his authority as an apostle of Christ. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 1.1, it says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sophonis. So we know his intent here. We know his intent was not from a place of pride. This is not why he's, he, he's telling the Corinthians and, and establishing this authority. But it's more because he's about to rebuke them. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, if you want to write that passage down, attest to that where he says, I am the least of the apostles. So we know Paul's intent. We know his heart. In essence, he was saying, what I have to say to you is coming straight from God. And so he establishes his authority. But again, Paul, wanting to strive with the Corinthians, before he reprimands them and goes into this rebuke, he encourages and reminds them that they are believers. And that's an encouragement. 
he, he says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He reminds these Corinthians that because they are believers, they should turn from their sin. So he establishes his authority that this message is coming from God. What I'm writing to you is coming from God. But you are believers. So be encouraged that you're believers. But because you're believers, you should be turning from this sin that, that he will discuss with them. Splits and quarrels in churches have been taking place since the early church. And they happen all of the time today as well. And maybe some of you have been through a church split or a division. And I thought just for curiosity, has anyone here been a part of a church in the past where they had gone through a split? There was just about what I, what I had expected. It's, it's sad. So this is relevant to us, guys. Again, I reiterate that Lakeside is not immune to division, dissension, or even a church split. And it makes me cringe to even think that that's a possibility but it should make us more passionate to fight against it. And this is the first thing that Paul addresses with the, with the Corinthians, this quarreling and division. This is what he calls out. And I find this interesting because in 1 Corinthians, there are four major issues that Paul deals with in the first half of this letter. There's four major issues. Division, incest, lawsuits, and sexual immorality. And he spends most of his time, in fact, dealing with division. He spends the first four chapters. And it was a major issue, and so he starts there. And, and we're familiar with, with arguing and being divisive, right? If you claim that you're not, I'll argue. Okay, okay, all right. Arguing starts at young ages, right? My wife and I, Jamie... We have a three-year-old and we have a 16-month-old. And the arguing is every day. Uh, sometimes it's nonstop. But it starts at this young age, but then it never quits. We get to uh, teenagers, young adults, midlife, elderly. Sorry, I've got to just at least throw out the terms. But arguing just never stops. We argue, we argue to the grave, right? I mean, we're an argumentative people. But what is the root of it? The root is sinful pride, and that takes us over. It's a feeding of our ego. James 4, 1 through 2 shows us that selfish desire is the root of this arguing and quarreling. I'm actually going to turn over. I want to read James 4, 1 through 2. And you can turn there as well. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We know the source of why division takes place, our sinful nature. But what are some of the outcomes? I think John MacArthur states it very well. He states it this way. And I quote, quarreling is a reality in the church because selfishness and other sins are realities in the church. Because of quarreling, the father is dishonored, the son is disgraced, 
His people are demoralized and discredited, and the world is turned off and confirmed in disbelief. Fractured fellowship robs Christians of joy and effectiveness. It robs God of glory and robs the world of the true testimony of the gospel. A high price to pay for an ego trip. And this is not what we as God's people want to be characterized as. And the opposite of arguing and quarreling and division is unity. And that word is tossed around quite a bit. Especially in religious circles. And it's, it, 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 it's a tainted word, in, 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 in my opinion, in, in today's, again, in today's culture. Even in light of everything that we've heard about and have been following in the news this week. It's tainted. Much like the rainbow, which was a symbol that God gave to us, promising he would never flood the earth. Instead, our society and world has taken that symbol for homosexuality. And when I hear the word unity, I often think of acceptance. doesn't matter how you live or act, we just need unity, right? That's not what biblical unity looks like. And it doesn't surprise me that Satan takes the things of God and perverts them to mean something else. But God does want unity in the church. Turn over to John 17, verse 11, if you would. John 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world. This is, again, this is the high priestly prayer. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And if we jump down in that same chapter to verses 21 through 23, we see that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he asks of the Father several times that we as believers would be one, just as he, the Son, is one with the Father. A perfect unity. So as I mentioned at the start, we want to look at, again, both division and unity. So let's look at verse 10 of our text in 1 Corinthians. So Paul starts in verse 10 here with an exhortation. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you. Again, he has just established his authority as an apostle to remind them that these words were coming from God and not some, some, some self-personal gain. And Paul says, I exhort you. And the idea here is, to, is of coming alongside of to help or to shepherd. So why exhort instead of perhaps a, a harsher tone? Paul cared deeply for this church. And he wanted to strive with them and get them going in the right direction. Again, not at the cost of abandoning truth. But here he exhorts and encourages, encourages them that there be no division among them. And everything with Paul uh, goes back to the root of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ. He exhorts them by the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Christ is the bond, 
He's the foundation. He is the core. Our common unified fellowship is found in Christ and Him alone. That is how we can be unified. And here Paul is talking about the unity of the local church as this was written specifically for the church at Corinth. And as he continues in verse 10, Paul encourages the believers to be unified doctrinally. This is the most important piece of a unified church. When he says that you all agree, and again, I'll I'll reread verse 10 here. I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That you all agree. It's literally saying that you all speak the same thing doctrinally. And it's damaging when different parties or factions within a church are preaching a different gospel. It confuses the flock. It creates dissension. You know, there's a reason the Bible gives far more direction to leadership within a church than it does on the congregation itself. The leadership holds the most responsibility to guide the flock. Why? Because the flock is to submit to the leadership. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13, and Hebrews 13, 17. This is the system God has created, not man. Children are to submit to parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. The congregation is to submit to its leadership. And the church is to submit to Christ. We are all to submit to Christ. And so when you have individuals or groups that start spreading a different doctrine, it becomes divisive. And I believe that the question on many of our minds that can arise from this is, okay, well, what if I don't agree with the doctrinal position? What if I'm unsure of some of the things that are being taught from Sunday school or the pulpit? Go to the leadership of the church. Lakeside is not shy on giving its biblical position on doctrinal issues. And in fact, even in our new members class, we cover the doctrinal statement. We cover these areas. There's nothing wrong with seeking out the leadership to gain an understanding on a position from which it's, it's teaching from. Here's what's wrong. Bad-mouthing. Creating division. Being argumentative. And we see and we know that God is very much opposed to that. So Paul here exhorts the Corinthians to be in agreement. So first and foremost, from what we are reading from Paul's writing, is that we are to be unified doctrinally. And that doctrine must come only from the Word of God. So here's an interesting question that I'll pose as well. Is there unity in Scripture? Does Scripture contradict itself? Does God disagree with himself? Of course not. There are many who believe Scripture is contradictory, but that is not the truth. We see an example of this in Acts 15.2, where the Pharisees, trying to contradict what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas were teaching regarding believers and circumcision, the old law, were trying to catch them up. Just an example of, how sinful men will try and point out that the Scripture is contradictory of itself. But we know that Scripture is in perfect unity. And Scripture is God-breathed, and we are to know the truth from His Word. 
So we as believers can be unified. We must be unified as we look to the truth of God's word to guide us. We need to be unified doctrinally. So how do we know that Paul was referring to the church being unified doctrinally when he says that you all agree? Well, let's look at what Paul was not referring to. We'll point to some scripture on this. Paul was not exhorting them to be unified superficially. I'll say that again. Paul was not exhorting them to be unified superficially. The truth of the gospel would not be tainted at the expense of unification. And turn with me to Galatians 2.5. Do a little bit of flipping around here. Galatians 2.5 says, To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. The truth had to be preserved. And one other example I'll, I'll draw your attention to, Romans 16.17. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Here Paul warns to be on guard and to turn away from those who teach things contrary to Scripture. So we know that this was not a simple, can't we all just get along kind of rebuke. He also was not referring to a uniformity, meaning we all agree on things of preference or even things pertaining to spiritual liberty. How do we know that? And we don't have time to really dive into this, but write this down. Paul goes in great length to explain that in Romans 14, 1 through 14, where he talks about spiritual liberty. We know that he was not referring to a uniformity. So as we go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 1, the close of verse 10, he says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. To be united in the same mind and same judgment. Again, this just further emphasizes that Paul was referring to a genuine unity and not one of just saying the same things without it affecting the heart. True unity is not suppressed unity just for the sake of getting along, as we've said. Mind and judgment implies both an internal and an external unity, meaning our beliefs dictate our actions. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians that this unity is both in the mind or in the heart, as, as we would say, and our judgments or outward decisions. So again, we are to be unified doctrinally, in mind and judgment. So, how did Paul hear about this quarreling and division? Um, we'll look at in, in verse 11 here as we continue through our text. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So we're not exactly sure who Chloe was, but it is speculated, there is some speculation uh, that she had some kind of prominence within the church. And there's also some speculation whether she wrote these things to Paul or Paul was visited while he was in Ephesus at the time. But in either case, he learns of these factions through Chloe's people. And as we move through our text and we, we come to verse 12, we see exactly the kind of division and factions that had started. 
Let's, let's look at verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And what we read here is that the Corinthian church was identifying with different leaders. Okay, so he mentions four individuals. Paul mentions four individuals here. So let's, let's go through these quickly. Okay, so Paul was first. That, that's obvious. Again, he started the church. Apollos was the current pastor or leader at the time. And he came directly after Paul, as we mentioned. And we read of his arrival, uh, if we go back to Acts 18, 24, chapter 19 of verse 1. That's where we read of uh, Apollos' arrival. The third individual is Cephas. Cephas is the apostle Peter. Okay, again, remember this name was given to him by Christ in John 1.42. And many of the Corinthian congregation followed after him. And lastly, we have the group who follow after Christ. And on the surface here, this, this sounds great. Why would Paul include them in this group of factions? Why would he include this group in the rebuke, especially if they were innocent in their hearts? And the answer is he wouldn't. There was a sinful pride that filled this group for following after Christ. And I think the commentator, Richard Pratt Jr., I think he described it very well when he says, boasting in Christ would have been fine. We know that. 1 Corinthians 131. Boasting in Christ would have been fine. But boasting in oneself for following Christ is sin. 1 Corinthians 1, 29-30. So later in the chapter, Paul addresses this. Again, so we need to ask the question, why would these groups or factions be arguing and creating schisms amongst themselves, identifying with different people? Why are they doing this? Well, it's very likely that these were the men who brought them to Christ. And so many of them felt a deep sense of loyalty to them. Many identified with Paul, who started the church and heard the gospel for the first time through him. Others came to know Christ through Apollos. And we are even told that Apollos was a man who people naturally would have been drawn to. Again, in Acts 1824, it says, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And many of us are drawn to those who speak well and are naturally engaging. Others followed Cephas or Peter. And perhaps some of the Jews in the Corinthian church struggled, like Peter, as it related to some of his hypocrisy concerning Jews and Gentiles and the law. And if you remember back to Galatians 2, 11 through 14, where Paul opposes and rebukes Peter for his hypocrisy. Peter at that time led Barnabas astray, and it's possible that some in the Corinthian church lent themselves to that way of thinking. And then again, we have the last group who identified themselves with Christ. But instead of helping their brothers and sisters to also identify only in Christ, they were puffed up with pride. So they remained in sin. And it's easy to understand and identify with the people at Corinth. Again, I would venture to say that every single one of us is drawn to somebody who has made an impact on our lives in a spiritual way. Again, we started this with with individuals who may have made an impact on us from a career. 
But then there are those who have made impacts on our spiritual lives. People who are very important to us, who we hold dear. I'm personally drawn to my father and his ministry. Again, it goes without saying that he was used tremendously by the Lord in my coming to faith. I think he's a great pastor. I think he's kind and compassionate shepherd who cares deeply for his flock. And this in and of itself is not wrong. When it becomes wrong and sinful is when it affects my loyalty or submission to other leaders that God has placed over me. It's wrong when I think of my father too highly and I don't care to listen to anyone else. It would be wrong when because you like another pastor, I become bitter. Because how could you not think that Jack Jenkins is superior? And because of that bitterness, I don't fellowship with you. I look down on you. Do you see that kind of path of division? How detrimental that can be. That small seed of thinking. That sinful pattern tears churches apart. I am thankful for the people in my life and yours who have made an impact on us. And we should show our gratitude, but not at the expense of our unity within the church. The danger of division, that sinful behavior, is toxic. Here's another reason it's very dangerous. When you identify with one leader or another, are you not putting a temptation in front of them to think more highly of themselves than they should? Have you thought about that? Paul could have succumbed to the temptation that, wow, this large group is following after me. They think I'm better than Peter or Apollos. Those thoughts can turn into, maybe I am better. Maybe other leaders should listen to me more. Creates division, dissension. Don't put that temptation in front of them. It's a slippery slope of sin. Starts with that seed and grows And before you know it, leaders are opposing one another. Division is possible when our loyalty is not to Christ alone. Division is possible when our loyalty is not to Christ alone. And as Paul moves into verse 13, he starts to build this argument against the Corinthians and their division by asking three questions. So let's see what those questions are in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let's deal with this first question. In my study, I I noticed that commentators took several different interpretations to this question. Was Paul inferring to a yes answer of, is Christ divided? Because of the Corinthians and their actions. Is Christ divided? Yes, because look at how you have taken to these factions. You have divided him amongst yourselves. Some actually would also say that Paul is asking about Christ's physical body. Is Christ divided or dismembered? Which, if so, then the Corinthians may have been justified in their actions. No, that's not the case. I think we can agree that this question, as well as the two that follow are rhetorical, as it is consistent with Paul's argument. Christ is not divided, and it's completely against his nature. 
And we see this in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. It's crazy to think that Christ would be divided amongst the church when there is so much scripture that contradicts that thinking. Again, we've touched on Christ's high priestly prayer. And the second and third questions are just as ludicrous as the first. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here Paul sticks a dagger right in the heart of the Corinthian sinful thinking. The work of the cross is sacred, foundational to our faith, and only Jesus Christ could perform this. And Paul writes, was it me who was crucified for you? Was I the one who paid for your sins? Was it I who redeemed you by shedding my blood? It's a preposterous question. I'm sure he was getting their attention as to how foolish their division had become. And lastly, he asked them about baptism. Are you baptized into man or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And this, again, may have been how the division started. Members, in essence, placed their allegiance in the man who baptized them instead of in their God who performed the actual work of salvation. Again, Paul's question is rhetorical. And it applies a resounding no. So as we read the next few verses, we see Paul expand upon this baptism conversation. So let's read verses 14 through 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And here Paul explains that he is actually thankful that he only baptized a few individuals. This continues to point to the fact that people were associating with the people who were baptizing them. And in verse 15, Paul explains he's thankful. He's thankful because so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now he does list a few individuals. And he does this to ensure he would not be discredited on something small as leaving out details. Scripture is, in, is inerrant, and Paul, but Paul himself was a man. So in God's sovereignty, Paul makes sure he states this point clearly. He even goes as far to say that beyond the people he mentioned, he does not recall or remember anyone else he baptized. Paul does not want the focus on him. He does not want the glory these Corinthians were attributing to the men they were following. So Paul concludes this section in, in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul states his reason for ministry. He was called by the Lord to preach the gospel. And at first read, I found it interesting to hear Paul say that he was not sent to baptize. Especially since baptism is a command from the Lord. But I want you to quickly turn over to Acts 26, 16 through 18. Acts 26, 16 through 18. This is Paul telling of his conversion. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the Lord speaking at Paul's conversion, he was sent to preach the gospel. It's interesting as well, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone. One commentator made this observation, can you imagine if you were baptized by Jesus? Your pride would be through the roof. Oh, you were baptized by John? That's cool. I was baptized by Jesus. And isn't that a similar thought with Paul? We can look at Paul. He is one of the greatest men of the faith. For many to be baptized by Paul would certainly puff people up even more so than many of them already were. And God calls Paul to preach the gospel. Guys, Paul was concerned for this flock. He knew the destruction division could cause and was causing, and so he wanted them first to be unified doctrinally, to be speaking the same thing. Have the same hearts and minds. Let your judgments be a reflection of that. That doctrine comes from the Word of God, and that Word of God points to Christ. Christ is your foundation. Secondly, he points out that division is possible when our loyalty is not on Christ alone. And for the Corinthians, the division had already taken place. Loyalty to men in a sinful manner causes destruction in the church. And so he pleads with them to fix your affections on Christ What have these men done for you? It is Christ who saved you. It is Christ who redeemed you. You know what Paul says later in this letter? In 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, I'll read it to you. Here's what Paul says later. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Fix your allegiance to Christ. And lastly, what about us? So what? What would Paul say if he wrote us a letter? To the church of God that is in Clearwater, Florida, brothers and sisters at Lakeside, I appeal to you. What would Paul say to us? Or even better, what if the letter was written to you? To David, I appeal to you, brother, that you not think less of your brothers and sisters for their actions. Because are we all not saved by the same grace through Jesus Christ? David, I warn you that your pride can cause division at Lakeside. Submit to your leadership as Christ has commanded, and do not be caught up in trivial matters. But rather, David, focus on serving Christ's church. David, remember that God himself has called many who sit beside you in the pew. They are his children, and you are to love them, be patient with them, and point them to Christ always. So ask yourself, do I cause division, or do I promote biblical unity here at Lakeside? What would Paul say in a letter written to you? Let's close in prayer. God, we are grateful for your word and the truths found in it.
thankful for this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. I pray that these truths will impact our hearts, that we will be mindful of our allegiances, that we will be mindful of how we treat the flock, that we will again promote biblical unity that's founded in the Word of God, that's founded on your doctrine, that's founded in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for our church, Lord, and I pray that you will keep us safe from division, that you will grow us, that we will be healthy, that you will protect us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.